Hi, this is presenter Crystal Dinapoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. So uh, I've, had a, I've had a busy, long week. Um, you haven't heard from me in a little while. It's because I've been a bit unwell. So, uh, you know, thanks for, uh, for sticking around and welcoming me back on this Sunday. But I've had a very busy week. I've been all over Melbourne, back and forth, traveling through Boomerang and Wurundjeri country. And here I am uh, sort of ending my week on the beautiful lands of the Wurundjeri people, the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people. And so I would like to pay my respects to elders past and present, uh, and express my gratitude for being able to conduct my work here. Uh, and I would like to acknowledge their continued connection to these beautiful and uh, lovely waterways, which will be the focus of today's show, um, as well as our beautiful sky country above. So, so far on Indigenuity, we have often traversed stories of Aboriginal knowledge systems that explore these areas of land country, water country and sky country. So today I want to talk about some really deadly knowledge, which is centred on water country. So I know I have a bit of a bias for the stars, so I'm taking us back down to earth and trying to look at some of the ingenuous way that we interact with these beautiful waterways. And so I want to have a look at one of the world's oldest aquacultural systems, which has been developed and sustained by the Gundachamara people. Aquaculture is... Uh, essentially a water-based agricultural process. <laughs> so agriculture, like our plants we, that, we, um, that we plan to cultivate, harvest. It's the same thing, but it's referring to systems which farm and harvest food sources such as fish, eels, and shellfish. And these systems are phenomenal. So I'm very excited to be able to dedicate some time to discuss them today. So Buj Bim, uh, in the language of the Gundichamara people, it's actually, uh, it translates to meaning high head. And so this actual, this feature, Butch Bim, is a, a volcano which is dormant, lying on Gunajimara country in Victoria. The formation of the volcano, Butch Bim, is tied deeply into the dreaming of the Gunajimara people. So the dreaming referring to essentially time immemorial at the time of creation where um, uh, many of uh, the stories, traditions and laws have been born from. The dreaming tradition of the Gundajimara people, which is deeply tied to Buj Bim, um, tells the story of an ancestral creation being, um, which has its form revealed in the earth or the land on Gundajimara country. The volcano itself, Buj Bim, is said to be the body of this being. The mountain is supposed to be the forehead. And then we also have some stones laid across the land that are meant to represent the teeth. The creation of Butch Bim is described in a story which I found uh, on um, Culture Victoria told by Gundachamara man John Lovett, um, which was then translated by Gundachamara artist Vicky Cousins. And I thought it was important to share that story, um, which is called Dalrod Wurong, the creation of Butch Bim. So at the start of the Akinji dreaming, four creator beings were sent by the great creator spirit to make the different features that cross the mirroring, which is the Gundajamara word for land or country. The creator beings were of giant form and first arrived at a secret, sacred location in the Stony Rises country just to the south of Kerup. 
Kerap was also known by some clans as Kundun or as um, you might find on Google Maps as being Lake Konda. These four creator beings took the shape of Mara, which is the Gunditjmara um, word for man. So Mara means man for the rest of this story. And these four creator beings, uh, they took the shape of these men and became the first of a long line of law Mara who had special spiritual and ceremonial powers and responsibilities. The Gunditjmara believe that the descendants of these four men continue to perform their special duties through the generations so that this is a link that is unbroken. Three of the original Lormara moved to other parts of the country, to the north and to the west. The fourth Lormara crouched down and his giant body transformed to make the peaks of Tapok and Bujbim, so these iconic uh, features in the land, and Bujbim being that centre of today's story. When Bujbim erupted molten lava and stone over, I think it's 37,000 years ago, the Gunditjmara witnessed the creator being, uh, being revealed in the country itself, with these scoria stones being his teeth. So essentially this fourth creator being is what um, has created this shape of Bujbim. As I said before, with Bujbim meaning high head, which refers to the body of this fourth martyr, um, the mountain is supposed to be his forehead and the stones are his teeth. So he remains in the earth. Uh, it's, I've seen images of the site sort of from a bird's eye view and it really is really cool to see this, this being essentially coming up from the ground. 37,000 years, 37, years ago, Bujbim erupted and changed this mirroring, which is, as I said before, the, the Gunditjmara word for country. And so it changed the country and paved the way for the formation of one of the world's oldest aquacultural systems. This dreaming story is, it is said by Gunditjmara people to be as old as time immemorial. At a minimum, it's tens of thousands of years old. So for context on the timeline, I feel like it's good to sort of put these things into context for a lot of people. Because I know when I have conversations with people about um, ancient civilizations and the history of technolo technological development across the world, people tend to think of a lot of really iconic sites like uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza, uh, the Colosseum, the Great Wall of China. And I feel like when we start to look at these timescales, it really puts the longevity of Aboriginal culture and um, sustained culture here into perspective. So, uh, for example, the Colosseum, which is really an iconic architectural marvel, which is, is often, I think, like the feature we think of when we talk about things like ancient Rome, that's only about 2,000 years old. The Great Pyramid of Giza, which is, I think, as most people would sort of refer to as being one of the most ancient structures that we have and sort of the first thing you think of when you think about cultures which have um, existed long ago, they are only around 4,500 years old. So to be talking about a system which has been formed tens of thousands of years ago to have a creation story which describes these events as they occurred, um, it really shows how Aboriginal knowledge systems have endured these millennia on a scale that is just honestly absurdly difficult to comprehend. And so I personally think they deserve a lot of respect and a lot of acknowledgement, which is why indigenuity likes to do what we are trying to do. And so Bujbim's uh, eruption um, led to these lava flows which spilled across the country and they created a system of water channels. And so since this um, period of time where these water channels have formed, the Gunditjmara people have developed 
really ingenious ways of um, storing and trapping eels that traverse these channels. They've constructed dams, which are barriers which um, you are placed in water to hold back water. It can make waters. Um, it can, we can it make uh, the level of the water raise in certain areas, so they can be quite handy to hold back water or to simply store it and raise it in certain areas, as well as weirs, which weirs are just also shallow dams, so small, smaller dams essentially built across rivers, which can really help regulate the level of water and also the flow of the water. Another really important feature in um, the Bujbin sort of landscape, other than the dams and the weirs, is these woven traps, which are really marvellous, which catch the eels and the fish. So the aquacultural system itself is really just a marvel. It's a very intricate system that covers around 100 square kilometres in area, so it's really massive. Um, and it's activated in different ways throughout the varying seasons across the year. So across a year, Gundijamara Miring, or country, will experience periods of rainfall and periods of dry heat, uh, as well as other seasonal cycles in the landscape, which across a year will lead to water levels either being uh, higher at certain periods and lower at other times. We also have the water levels change across millennia, depending on uh, some of the really long-term cycles that we have in our environment as well. And the system has been developed to accommodate all of these, water, these varying water levels, which I think this is just my favourite part because it's just so expertly constructed and so efficient. So it, um, the aquacultural system has been designed so that eel traps um, are consistently supplying enough food for the sedentary Gundachimara community which could also then be traded with neighbouring communities. And so something that I probably won't dive too deep into, um, but there are also like 200 um, different, uh, uh, I guess like, I, I, um, I can't think of the right word to say it, but essentially um, 200 different like stone houses, which we can still see um, the remnants of. I don't like the word remnant, but I feel like that's the word that's coming to mind for me at the moment. And so you can see that there is a very stable sense of community and um, settlement in this area and that these eel traps not only sustain those communities, but then are also able to be used as a resource to trade with neighbouring communities. So um, this eel trap system is a really big part of the, I guess, the, the food economy in, um, for Gundajamara people over time. And so with these varying heights of water, different areas of this vast aquacultural system will actually be activated. So when waters are high in certain areas, certain weirs and dams in the system will be more active at trapping and guiding eels into certain catchments than at other times of the year where water are lower and other weirs will actually come become activated while the other ones sort of become redundant as they sort of become very dry and empty, which I think is really cool. So it's, it's created in such a way that throughout the entire year, it has um, an, a really cool uh, utility. Uh, so, the, yeah, these weirs and the whole sort of setup, uh, the way that it actually traps the eels is that it guides them into these catchment areas, um, which have been designed as well to have a big focus on sustainability. So uh, this makes sure that only eels of a certain size um, and in a certain number would be trapped, but it wouldn't disrupt the natural cycles um, and populations of those areas. And the woven eel traps themselves are really cool, and I feel like they deserve a lot of acknowledgement. So you can imagine um, 
to to weave these eel traps from native grasses to be super sturdy um, and to be able to uh, essentially pass through a lot of these eels. It's, um, I feel like they're so much larger and so much sturdier than you would anticipate when you sort of see some of the first pictures of them. They are just really cool. So they tend to be um, woven by Gundichamara women and they essentially look like a very long tube, right? And at one end, it sort of looks like a, like a really exaggerated trumpet. So it widens up really dramatically, very quickly, um, and is placed such that the eels will be travelling towards this opening and will enter it with ease. However, as we move down the length of the tube, the eel ac- the tube itself actually starts to narrow a lot. And so we sort of get um, uh, this, this narrowing end, um, which is still wide enough for the kuyang, which is the word for the eel in Gugundachimara word, or the short-finned eel, um, for them to actually travel through. And once they pop through, they sort of end up in a catchment area but are unable to travel back up the trap because of the way it's designed. They're able to be super accessible from one end so that all eel can actually f- pass through it, but to return up it is pretty much impossible for the eel. So it's very efficient in guiding them through. And so these uh, these tubes, these uh, eel traps, are around a couple of metres in length, so they're really big. And, uh, uh, yeah, I just – I think they are – uh, no, I think the whole system is just mind-blowing. I feel like it's a shame, honestly, to almost talk <laughs> talk about it without it being able to have visual aids to show you uh, because it is a really vast, large system with many different working components that all uh, work together in such a way that they can um, provide for the community the whole year round regardless of the conditions of the ecosystem um, and are done in such a way that promotes sustainability but also efficiency so that... Uh, yeah, I, the whole thing just really blows my mind. I think the uh, the I think like sort of like the good news at you know talking about this really uh, exciting landscape um, and that saying in in saying that it should be really valued and recognised, it was actually granted in the last few years a world heritage listing. So it has been regarded as having worldwide outstanding universal value, um, and I hope that is uh, honestly just um, the beginning of us taking a lot of Aboriginal uh, sites, um, I was trying to think of a, a better word to sort of describe it, but these these incredible systems that really do uh, are scattered right across the country um, and to motivate us to be protecting them from further destruction because that is something that really breaks my heart when I see amazing feats of Aboriginal technology and Aboriginal knowledge uh, unfortunately being destroyed. And so that's my uh, my little spiel on Butch Bim. There are other aquacultural systems that are really cool across the country. Uh, in particular, there's um, the Burrawarana uh, fish traps, which work in a very similar way. And so I hope this encourages you to uh, learn a bit more about some of the ingenious ways that we interact with our water, our waterways and our water country. Before we sign off, I thought it could be good to plug an exciting event that's occurring next month for me. So uh, as some of our long-term listeners will probably be aware, this year, actually only about a month and a half ago, so a matter of six weeks, um, my, my first book has been published. So I co-wrote uh, a book called Astronomy Sky Country with fellow Gomoroi astrophysicist Carly Noon. Uh, and it's part of the first Knowledge series with Tamsin Hudson in partnership with the National Museum of Australia. 
And so um, I really love the series. I've spoken to quite a few of the authors from the series on Indigenuity last year. So once again, if you want to listen to some of those conversations, I encourage you to search up the series, um, search up those uh, those episodes and have a listen to the, the chats that we've had. And so next month is the official book launch for Astronomy Sky Country. <laughs> Um, we're finally getting around to it, which is really exciting. I'm very, very grateful. It's the hard work of um, uh, Associate Professor Dwayne Harmacher with Astro 3D in Swinburne, who have come together to fund what should hopefully be a very lovely event. So a welcome to country, catering, um, and a conversation between me and uh, Barkindji woman Zena Cumston, who has also been a previous guest on Indigenuity. So this isn't a free event. So if anyone, if you know, if you love the show, if you if you bought the book and like the book, um, you're welcome to attend. Free to attend. Just need to go online, um, searching up Astronomy Sky Country Book Lodge and register with Eventbrite. Uh, so it's on the 15th of July from 6.30 to 8.30. And uh, yeah, hopefully I, hopefully I see you there. But on that note, we're going to sign off for this week. Uh, so I wish you all of the best with the coming week and we will see you back again next Sunday. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders, showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.